Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today is part two of my conversation with Michael Ventura. Michael is a leader, an educator, coach, and facilitator of practices rooted in empathy. His work guides measurable transformation for both individuals and organizations. Previously, we talked about taking good business risks and how empathy works as a revenue generating tool for product development. But how do you know what empathy looks like for your business? Well, let's dig in. A big part of our work and my work now post my time at Sabrosa is working with leaders to help figure out how to incorporate this into all facets of the business, right? How are we gathering the information from our customers or consumers and using that to inform product decision-making or improvements to our service offering? Yeah, so it sounds like that you're a big believer, I would say, on the qualitative side of things, of mining insights through real conversations. And is that typically what you do or do you have other methodologies that you use? Yeah, quant plays a role too. But what I will say is that what you learn in qual will be validated with extra zeros in quant most of the time in my experience is that like if someone wants to know like you can go talk to 35 or 40 people and you're probably going to get 80 percent of what you'll hear when you go talk to 4,000 people on a survey yeah Uh, and but but some people want to know you talk to 4,000 people before they make a big strategic decision and i can understand that and so um quant for me has been a backup and a data checks and balances to the insights that emerge out of qual. Yeah, I have the same exact experience too. I have heard you talk about, write about, I wrote down a quote from you that says, empathy really, it comes with an obligation and a moral code of conduct. I would love to know what you mean by that, but I couldn't help but think about kind of the state that we're in, in the social media realm of algorithms and manipulation of attention. And that's where my mind went immediately. But it also could be listening to the podcast episodes that I've been listening to. (laughs) You're right on the money, I'll tell you. So there are three main kinds of empathy, clinically speaking. There's affective empathy with an A, there's somatic empathy, and there's cognitive empathy. The work I do primarily lives in the realm of cognitive empathy. I'll tell you about the other two very briefly. Affective empathy is basically golden rule behavior. So that would be, what would I want if I was in your shoes? Well, guess what? I'm not you. And what you might want in your shoes are different than if I'm in that same situation. I've got a deadline tomorrow. There's 10 minutes left until I've got to get this thing done. I've got too much going on. Michael may handle that very differently than the way Jacqueline may handle it. And so effective empathy doesn't always get it right. Me in your shoes, seeing the world from your eyes still brings my bias along with me. Right. Somatic empathy is the physical experience of someone else, understanding what it is like to physically go through something. So everyone has had an involuntary version of this when someone has accidentally slammed their hand in a drawer or a car door. You see it and you wince or you pull your hand back, right? Like that's a mirror neuron thing that you've been there too, right? And when you can game that, through a variety of different design techniques. So for example, automotive industry uses this a lot to understand how differently abled and different body shapes and sizes get in and out of vehicles. And so, you know, if we want to design a vehicle that's going to accommodate the most amount of drivers using different suits or different simulations in order to see how people can get in and out of the vehicle can ultimately improve the product design. But it's not where I spend a lot of my time. 
Third bit, cognitive empathy, is where I would refer to it as the platinum rule instead of the golden rule, right? Which would be do unto others as they would have you do unto them, right? And so how am I going to know what Jacqueline wants? Well, I'm going to have to ask questions. I'm going to have to listen to what you tell me. And then I'm going to have to do the thing that everyone hates to do, change my behavior to suit your needs. <laughs> and <laughs> Why do we hate that so much? We just do. We really do. As humans, I think we want to assume we know more than we do. And we don't want to have to actually ask it because asking it might prove that we didn't. But that's where it happens. And so to go to your point about the algorithms, it is so sharp of you to have caught that because the reason I brought up that point about code of ethics with respect to practicing cognitive empathy was born out of Cambridge Analytica and what they did to manipulate people's behavior during an election cycle. They basically took information about people and the way they consume information, and they changed what was being put in front of them in such a way to nefariously affect their behavior without them knowing. And the without them knowing is the most important part. That's the code yeah. of we essentially need a GDPR for empathy, which is what we are getting closer toward when people do have to opt in to share their information now. But a good sociopath is actually a good cognitive empath. They have to understand you in order to manipulate you. Otherwise, you know a lot of them. Uh, I've come to know more over the years because <laughs> you'll fail at manipulation if you don't understand who you're trying to manipulate and what drives them or what scares them, right? Like, People who have a sociopathy are better at it when they know how to get inside your head. And so I always tell people, if I'm going to teach you how to do this, it's not to make you a better sociopath. And so we need to have a code of ethics, which means what am I going to do with this information you've given me? How do we build and accelerate trust between the two of us so that you know when you share something with me, it is going to be used in the service of deepening our relationship and working better together, not so that when you come to me for a promotion in six months, I say, yeah, but you told me you were really uncomfortable about that thing a few months ago. And so that tells me you're not really a confident leader, mm -hmm. right? Like if we are going to build a trust between each other, it has to be for a common good. Good. I'm glad I asked that. So not to name drop or anything, but... Can you talk about your work that you did with the Obama administration? <laughs> um, sure. How, how did you even get that gig? So I got that gig because there was a really switched on guy named Jason Wasky, who is running a thing called Civic Nation at the time, which was basically a outreach to for-profit businesses like mine and others ad agencies, communication shops, strat shops, all of them, and said, give some of your time to the public sector and donate some pro bono resources to issues that the administration wants to finish before its time is up. This was in the last two years of the second administration. And so they didn't want a lame duck term or presidency. And so there was a lot of stuff that was unfinished. And so we rallied together. There was about 40 businesses across the country that got in a room and we told them, we'll give this many hours. And these are the types of issues we're interested in working on. Mine particularly, we're focused on Native American and indigenous rights. And so with respect to that type of work, we got pulled into a series of projects around stuff happening in Indian country, connectivity and job creation for Native communities, a bunch of stuff that was really important to us. And we used empathy and a practice of understanding to sort of find out what it's like living on the res. And, you know, 25% of reservation communities have zero internet. 50% have dial-up still, at least at that time. I don't know how the numbers have shifted since the administration, but 
that was staggering in a world where everyone else was pretty much on high-speed internet in a major city. And so that inequity is only going to waterfall into education opportunities, job placement, career advancement, household income, debt, all of these things that were all being impacted because at the very fundamental level, there weren't things that were standardized in other parts of the country being offered in Indian country. Wow. That's cool. Did you get to meet the Obamas? We met the First Lady a handful of times and also Joe Biden. I've been in the room with the former President Obama a handful of times, but never got to shake his hand yet. Who knows? Okay. Yes. <laughs> you never know. Barack, if you're listening, which he totally might be. love how he's casually like, yeah, I met the first lady a handful of times. Anyway, let's focus on how we're not trying to create more sociopaths with this episode by stating that empathy does come with real obligation, a moral code, if you will. Because if we ask questions to find out what people really want or what their deep concerns are, we're obligated to use that information for good. So now you might argue that marketing can be a form of manipulation, and I've heard that before. But I'd also counter that with saying that we're only receptive to a brand message when it's presenting a solution to a problem that we have or taps into a desire that we already have. Otherwise, we would just ignore it and it would just fade into the background. So when you think about it, empathy is really the engine behind a powerful human insight because it's all about peeling back the layers to uncover what's truly wanted and then creating a product or service to meet that need. Up next, Michael gives us a new question to ask in your next Zoom meeting, and we also discuss the true value of a good consultant. The biggest part of empathy is asking questions and probing questions and getting to know the person across from you or your audience. Can you give us a couple of probing questions to take away for how they can use it, whether it's in their own life or, you know, personally or professionally? So the first one that I always tell people, you know, those five minutes of like pre-meeting banter when you're sitting in a conference room or you're on a Zoom and you're waiting for everyone to join, you're like, oh, hey, Jacqueline, how are you? And Jacqueline's like, oh, I'm fine. I had a nice weekend. It was sunny. And we went to have dinner with some friends, right? And like, we say the same stuff we say all the time because it's the same question we get asked all the time. Change Mm -hmm. that question. The change that I often tell people to make is, hey, what's it like to be you today? (laughs) Same question, same general curiosity. But I promise you, you will get a more interesting answer every time because it hits your ears different. It's not a question you've been asked before. makes you actually use a different part of your brain and think. And so you're going to give me a new answer. And so notice where you have those repeatable patterns and repeatable questions in your daily life, right? Maybe it's the question you ask your direct reports, or maybe it's the thing that you and your partner talk about over dinner. Mm -hmm. You don't have to 180 it. Just find a different way of phrasing it so that it hits people differently and they perk up and you'll get better answers. I love that. That's a great. What's it like to be you today? I'm going to use that. One question I always tend to ask because I get interesting answers here, which is, has there been anything that's truly surprised you during this entrepreneurial journey that you're on so far, even since leaving Sub Rosa? Has humanity surprised you at all? Every day at every turn, to be honest, I would say the thing that 
I am often reminded of the most in clever and universe winking at you kind of ways is that growth is always hiding in places you least expect it. And when a challenge gets put before me, find the teaching in it is something that people may roll their eyes at because like, oh, you know, it sounds like a very new age way of looking at the world, but it's the only way I get through the world is by, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is bringing something up in me that is frustrating me and that's agitating me or that's upsetting me. Why? Is it a me thing? Is it a circumstantial thing? Is it a this other person thing? And what's that reflecting back on? And how can I learn from this? How can I take this on as a piece of work? Because we only get a short amount of time on this goofy little rock as it spins around. And if we're not working on ourselves and trying to improve ourselves, then I feel like it's time wasted. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway, which is, do you do anything to market your consulting practice? I feel like people are just kind of calling you, but you know, you tell me. That's nice. I don't overtly know. I, I think, you know, what I try to do is is be in dialogue as much as I can. So doing things like this is important to me so that we get to share messages like this with more and more people. I have a pretty consistent Substack that I write on. I have a second book that's in development presently that'll come out in probably a year and change from now. I do a lot of workshops and talks and keynotes, and that's sort of the way I stay out in the world. There's not a lot of like, quote unquote, marketing, but it is a lot of sort of continuing to share this work and participate with others who are interested in it. Where do you want to take this in the next five years, 10 years? What do you think that your impact out in the world would be, should be? That's a very hard question for me to answer, only because the impact I want to have in the world is cacophonous. And so what I hope happens is that it shakes other people into having their impact in the world. I want to be a supporter of what you want to see change. The work that I really like to do is zero to one work. And it's about kind of like shaking you loose a little bit if you've been stuck. And if there's an impediment that stands in the way of you and where you'd like to be, I'd like to help you get over that so that you can keep going without me. I always to the chagrin of every CFO I've ever had, sort of eschewed the idea of retainers, right? Because while, yes, they normalize cash flow, they also build complacency and codependence. And I felt like my best client relationships are still going 20 years later, but they've not been constant every month for 20 years. Right. Because it shouldn't be. If that's the case, what have I helped you do? Really, a consultant is supposed to put their clients on their way, say goodbye. I've given you all the tools that you need and hit me back when you have another problem to solve. Exactly. And that has always been my approach. So what is the world I'd like to see? I'd like to see a world that's more inclusive, that's more equitable, that's more kind, that's more willing to change for the better. And that is also willing to accept each other's differences without being disagreeable or confrontational. I think that we sometimes get wrapped up, particularly in the US, particularly in the last five to seven years, about like people trying too hard to create a purple policy where no one's blue and no one's red. We kind of merge into this one way we see the world. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But what I would love is to make sure that people who have differing views than mine still respect my right to have my views, as long as my views don't impinge on their rights and their ability to have their own. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that we haven't covered about you that you want people to know? 
it's less about me, but I guess it's sort of like a thing that's been on my mind lately is work hard, but work hard at also taking your breaks. Mm. Because I think we get really, you know, hustle porn is a real thing that people like to sort of put out into the world and like this like nonstop 24 seven hour way of working. And I've really embraced a different way of working over the last two years. I don't work every day. Mm-hmm. I take long breaks if I need to. I walk the dogs in the middle of a workday. God forbid. Yes. Um, crazy. And I'm more efficient. I'm happier. I'm doing work I love. And I still can make time for that. And if you don't think you can, you can. Yeah. How many individuals do you have as clients versus large corporations, small boutique places? What's your client breakdown? I would say... are household names, 30% are mid-cap businesses that you might not know the names, but, you know, they are a solid player in their space. And then I'm on 10 startup boards at the moment. So those are of varying sizes and shapes. So anywhere from seed round to like series B. And then I've got at any given time, anywhere from like two to six individuals that I'm working with, typically at the sea level, who are looking for some more sort of hand-to-hand guidance Mm -hmm. as they move through their next chapter. Yeah, for leadership and things. Great. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. And where can people find you, learn more about Applied Empathy if they want to know more and start their own practice in the day? MichaelVentura.co. That's it. That's it. Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up part two of my conversation with Michael. He's on a noble mission to create a world that is more inclusive, more equitable, and dare I say, more kind. I found it personally inspiring how we talked about growth is always hiding in the most unexpected places. His take on adversity, just for example, is not just about an opportunity to grow personally, which sometimes it is, but also he uses it as a business opportunity. It's a refreshing way to look at things that can frustrate you by asking, is it like a me thing? Is it circumstantial? And then when you reflect on what the answer is, use the lesson to think, how can I take this on as a piece of work? I love that. And secondly, one of the more powerful notions that we covered today is how Michael looks at the purpose of his work, which is to shake loose what's stuck. Oh, it's so great. Getting people from zero to something doesn't always start with a huge action. Sometimes it's really small increments. It starts with a problem that the client has. It can lead to a workshop collaboration with their peers. We uncover an insight, an aha moment, for example, and then that leads to behavior change. And that change can be how brands think about their customers, or it could be a change in the company culture. Either way, the role of a facilitator is to create the space and the circumstances to really reframe a client's thinking and literally shake loose old patterns to form new ones. That's the true value of a good consultant. And that's also why I wouldn't have any other job in the world. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. You can learn more about Michael's services at michaelventura.co. 
And finally, if you need to shake loose some marketing patterns of your own and create differentiation, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. Thanks so much for listening.